today. My girl, Nedra Glover-Tawab, is in the house. She is a relationship expert and a best-selling author, and she is back by popular demand because, oh my God, we got so much more to talk about in regards to relationships, finding the right person, how to deal with turbulent issues, and then how on earth you're able to break free from a toxic relationship. So if you find yourself in a turbulent toxic relationship, then homie, she shares what questions we need to ask ourselves. We also talk about what's been missing and the biggest clue of a dysfunctional relationship and how we can spot it. And if you're just done with all of this toxic drama and relationship stuff, and all you're looking for is actual peace, then this is the one thing that you can change immediately. So let's dive in right now and find out from my girl, Nedra Glover-Tawab, how we can actually have successful relationships and not let other people push us around or manipulate us in toxic relationships. Let's get after it. It does take a lot of strength and certainly courage to show up as your boundaried self. It takes strength and courage to no longer allow the gaslighting to be effective on you because we can't stop people from gaslighting. We can't stop people from, from guilt tripping, but we can certainly proceed with the no after they issue some guilt tripping. We certainly could say, you know, I recognize what you're doing. You know, you're trying to manipulate me and I'm not going to say that didn't happen or I'm not going to keep this thing a secret or I'm not going to pretend that, you know, things are hunky dory in front of everyone when we actually have a problem. You can still decide to do that. It's not about changing everyone else and how they show up with you. It's about changing you and how you show up with them. Oh, God, I like that. How do you, I'm just going to keep going through that. How do you stay strong in those moments? So, because you've said in your book about how um, a lot of people, when you're trying to make these changes in your family dynamic, because it's been so long, right, since childhood, from everything that you've brought um, from your childhood into adulthood, how do you start changing those dynamics when they're trying to, um, let's say, pretend that it didn't happen? You talk about denial a lot. Mm-hmm. And in those moments of denial and gaslighting, it's so hard to be so strong in your own conviction when you maybe have five other people in your family, your siblings and your parents all telling you that, no, it wasn't like that, or no, it didn't happen like that, and it's all you. Do we need to go to the people who are causing the harm for validation of their harm? They may not be in that space to affirm what you're going through. They may not be able to affirm your experience because now you're asking them to do the work of dealing with themselves. They may not be in that healing space. You're in that healing space. And so when the support is no longer in your family or not, you know, with extended family members, you have to seek support outside of that system. I will, you know, recognize that in some families, we don't think there's any support because we haven't been vocal about the issue. But there may be a cousin. There may be an aunt. There may be someone in there who identifies with what you're saying. And if not, there's friends, there's, you know, people in your community, there are online communities, there are tons of other people who may know what you're going through that you can identify with. It may not be within the system that caused the issue. Mm. What about the deep-rooted betrayal that a lot of people feel about Mm -hmm. going against their family? You have a quote that you say, um, unintentional harm is still harm. But I think because we say, well, it's blood, 
we almost often dismiss the harm that's been done to us. Mm. Yeah, I, I've had years of work with children who were in child protective services. They were removed from their home for physical abuse, sexual abuse. Um, and to minimize a person's harm. And it was interesting in those situations, kids wanted to be with their families no matter what happened. It's like, I wanna go back home. So even if it was a case where it was not safe for them, they wanted to forgive because it was family even if it wasn't the healthiest thing for them. So I know that when we get to the place of, I no longer want to be in this relationship or I need to take space from this relationship, typically something pretty serious or relentless has happened in the relationship. And we have to allow people the space to have some distance without us implying that you should talk to your family no matter what. Blood is thicker than water. Don't you feel guilty? It's your mom. You know, my mother is not your mother, so I can't mm. say, you know, what happened in your house. All we know is how a person presents. And your mother could present very well to other people or your father can present well or your siblings. We don't know what's happening in other folks' relationships. So it's very hard to say this is what should happen in families. All families look different. Mm. But what about that notion? The mother thing's really strong, girl, because so many people say that, but you've only got one mother. What are you going to do? Not talk to her? Mm. And so that guilt trip, that idea that, oh my God, I should be this way, or it means I'm less of a, a child, a person, or less of a daughter, if I decide to not speak to my mother. Like, that's so hard. And so that really does trap us um, into um, a relationship where we're being mistreated. And I think you even said, mm. like, just because it's your family doesn't mean that you should accept mistreatment. Well, think about this. Think about a girlfriend that you've had that just turned out to be not a great person. Picture her as a mom <laughs> doing those same things to her child. You know, look, I think sometimes when we're thinking about the mother-child relationship, we're not thinking about the behavior of the actual mother. We're thinking about this is a parent and no matter what, we're giving it a lot of role and not a lot of relationship. Mm. The relationship part is really important. I've known some women, it's like, oh my gosh, girl, I can't believe you like that. I can't imagine how they might be to a child. Mm. We, don't we don't know. And so it's very hard for me to, to meet a woman who says, or, or a man who says, you know, I don't have a relationship with my parent. I don't want to challenge that. Because I don't know what that situation is. I have a lot of compassion for it because that's a hard place to get to because we are programmed to attach to our parents, even when they've done, you know, many things. And so once a person gets to that place, when you don't understand, it's best to listen. It's best to perhaps ask questions if it's appropriate, but it's certainly not okay to guilt trip them or shame them in any way because you don't know the full story. So many of us, Nedra, have been bred to have unconditional loyalty. So in these moments where maybe you can even identify, yes, my mother is mistreating me, that we just then accept, well, that's who they are. And that means I should just stay in this abusive, mistreated relationship. Mm. I am loyal to love. I'm not loyal to abuse. I'm not loyal to um, abandonment. I'm not loyal to 
um, persecution. And I think we we mix up what's what love is because people will abuse you and say, I love you. Now go to bed after you, <laughs> after they've done a, a ton of things, you know, or not taking good care of you or, you know, maybe hurt you in some way. They will still say, I love you. And so that's that's very confusing to have love infused with abuse and neglect, even from a sibling, a sibling bullying you to have I love you infused with bullying. Mm. And sometimes we we get it twisted in our mind, like, well, maybe they do. They're still here. And it's it, maybe their idea of love is also twisted. But can we have love where there is pain? I'm not talking about humans being humans, where they make a mistake every once in a while to get it wrong. I'm talking about sometimes intentional pain. Mm. Is that loving? And so loyalty is is important. Sometimes but we have to question what we're being loyal to. Are we being loyal to lies? Are we being loyal to keeping secrets that are actually hurtful for us? Are we being loyal to, you know, abusive situations? Sometimes we are with mothers or or fathers who have tendencies of being overbearing of, you know, maybe sometimes being mean. I do wonder you know, within us, what do we do to change those situations? I was talking to a woman who said her um, her mother calls her every day. And if she doesn't call her mother back, she's like, why didn't you call me? You were leaving work. Why didn't you answer the phone? And she's like, I feel a lot of pressure. Like, you know, if if we don't want to talk to someone as an adult, you have the opportunity to perhaps not talk to that person mm-hmm. as much as they would like. And it's It's really hard when someone is demanding it. You know, you call me when you get here. Call me when you get back. Answer the phone when I call. And I said, you know, it sounds like you and your your mom have different boundaries. Her expectation is that she talks to you all the time. Your expectation is that she doesn't. I'm talking to you. So who am I talking to about enforcing expectations? You. I can't go to her. She's not here. (laughs) I can't go to her and say, girl, stop calling her, you know, but I can look at you and say, why do you answer? Have you ever said anything to her about that? What have you tried to do? Because it's one thing to say, oh, this person, I can't believe they're doing all this stuff to me. And it's another thing to go along with all the stuff they're doing. I just need to let that last line sink in. That was so good. So how do you then uh, actually like separate those two? Because again, like there's so much belief that has been embedded in us as growing up that how do we know what we're just going along with versus what um, we should be going along with? What feels good and what doesn't? You know, going back to those feelings and saying, because there are some, you know, parents, you love to talk to them multiple times a day. Don't change that. Mm. It's in situations where people don't that it's problematic. So how do you say this? This doesn't work for me as you would in any other relationship. How do you say, you know, uh, for the holidays, I don't want to come to your house or, you know, I'll be spending the holidays, you know, with my friends or whatever those things are. How do you start to say that? Because people can demand or they can request whatever they want to. They have your phone number. They can call you. They can text you. They can do all of these things. How do you respond to that? I think of social media. 
And people will say like, how do you, you know, make people be nice to you? I don't. I get crazy DMs. Mm. How do I not respond to them is the bigger question because I don't. I don't respond and I block them because this is not a type of behavior that I tolerate. And you've decided that beforehand so it's easier for you to show up and draw that boundary. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Okay, as you were talking, I'm always trying to think about what is the reality of humans? And so there's these people that are listening to everything you're saying that is so beautiful and it's so concrete. But what is the thing that gets in our way? Why do we still have problems with our family dynamics, with um, how we've been treated as children and how we uh, bring that into our adulthood? And I was just thinking about those moments where maybe we're trying to set boundaries with our parents or trying to set boundaries with our families because we really want to build confidence. We want to build, um, you know, uh, resilience in ourselves. And so we're, we're practicing these things. Okay, so step number one, I need to start setting boundaries with my family. The thing that I think holds a lot of people up, especially when it comes to families, uh, parents, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but in you saying, I'm not going to go to a Christmas dinner, Right. Mm -hmm. Let's say that's a beautiful way to go. I've assessed my mental health, what I need and what is going to be detrimental to my mental health. And maybe you've decided, you know, what? if I go to this dinner, then it's not going to be good for my mental health. But then the realities of life and humanity come flooding in where maybe it's like, but what if they die and you never get another Christmas with them? So I'm going dramatic, but this is actually how I think. And I think that this is very true to so many people where it's like, but what if I disappoint my dad and I don't you know, and I marry this person and he passes away and my marriage doesn't work. And I now I've disappointed my dad and he was mm-hmm. right in a way, right? Like we, we do project fears into our decisions that we make. And I think that, that those fears often dictate um, maybe the poor boundaries that we believe that we either shouldn't have or the, the direction that we go in in our life doesn't actually serve us. Mm. That is a huge reason we stay in relationships because of that what if. What if they get sick? What if I'm not around when this happens? There is this fear that something tragic will happen and we'll miss it because of these boundaries we place, because of these things we put um, in action in the relationship. And, you know, I think when you get to a point of maybe severing ties with someone or placing a boundary or creating some distance or even just making some changes in the relationship. You do it when you're ready for it. And if those are your thoughts, if you're still thinking about what if, what if, that could be a sign you're not ready. Mm. And that's okay. You know, there's no pressure to, to change at any point. You know, as a therapist, I've seen people struggle, you know, in some family relationships forever. <laughs> because they don't want to leave them. And that's so much of what this book is about. It's really about how do you change your role in the relationship when you're not ready to leave? Mm. Because every relationship isn't to be discarded. You know, if I have issues in my relationship with my mother, I call and I talk to her about those issues. I don't, I, I have not thought, you know what? I need to stop talking to her. Mm. It's like, hey, okay, new boundary girl. Like, here's the thing. So when you came to visit, you know, like this is the thing. It's not always, you know what? We need to end this relationship. She may get upset sometimes, but I get upset when she does certain things. Mm. Isn't that a part of a relationship? You know, I I try to make relationships um, seem like a space where people will annoy you. 
They won't always get things right. And it doesn't mean that you don't love them. It just means you're in a relationship. Mm. You will argue with people. You will have disagreements. That's a part of being in a relationship. If you're expecting perfection always in a family relationship, in a romantic relationship, it's not going to be a very healthy relationship. You will have to say something to people because you're growing and changing and so are they. And I I think one of the things that happens when you become an adult is there is still that age difference there in our relationship with some family members. But hopefully there starts to be the respect of adulthood, Mm. that you have the opportunity to create the life you wanted, just like your parents did, just like your siblings are doing, just like everybody else is doing. You get to do that, too. Mm. How do you then help? If that dynamic hasn't changed, right, because it's thinking about identity and everything that you just said, often when you're a child, especially being the youngest, so I'm the youngest child, I've my entire life thought of myself as the youngest child. And so I, I, I'm talked to by my parents as the youngest child and then my siblings will tr- talk to me like the youngest child. And then recently they hit me up over text and we were having this big family text and it was this big decision that we were making over um, it's a family issue. And... I've been the youngest child, kind of just stepped back. And everyone's like, Lisa, you need to speak up. And I was mm. like, oh my God, I did. It hadn't even dawned on me that the dynamics had changed and that the identity was that, or the, the thing that they had seen me as now is the person that helps make decisions. But I had so had the identity of being the youngest child that I put myself in that position. How often do you see that dynamic happen? And then how do you help people um, either pivot their identity to be Mm -hmm. the adult instead of staying as that child? um, And then how to help the family see that you've changed? Mm. Some of the things that we learned in childhood, it still works for us, right? Like I'm the youngest child, right? And I remember... um, my sibling and I have a huge age gap. So I remember like with my, my sibling and my older cousins being like, don't tell me what to do. So I always wanted like this autonomy mm-hmm. and I'm still very much like that. And, you know, I, it's not necessarily problematic. And I find that I gravitate towards other people who have that same sort of younger sibling energy. Like it's, it's just something that, you know, I'm, I'm used to and I I like that sort of personality, but I will also say with that, you have to figure out when you are being the youngest or the oldest in a situation that doesn't require it. You know, if you're the oldest child and you're used to like, you know, telling all these little people what to do, you may not need to do that at work. (laughs) Your friends might not like that very much. If you're the youngest and you're like, I don't care what everybody else says, it's like, no, speak up. You know, so there are times where that doesn't work for us anymore. And we have to recognize it, especially when you get into a relationship and it's like, this person expects me to do everything for them because they're the youngest. (laughs) They're used to being catered to. It's like, this isn't, you got to change your role now. So we have to think about like what happened to us and how it impacts our relationships. How are we showing up? Not all things are going to be problematic, but some things are. I'm, I'm with you. Like sometimes I, you know, especially in a group dynamic, I'm very quiet. I'm like, everybody else make a decision and I'll go with mm. it or I'll say no. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm like, mm, doesn't work for me, but I won't get in on the decision making because it's like, ah, you pull together. Mm. And I, I know that like with you, sometimes that could be problematic because I'm not making a decision, but I'm like, I really kind of don't care. I'm going to do it or not. Mm. <laughs> so how do you then identify when it's useful and when it's not useful? What is the pushback? What are other people saying about it? You have to be open to that feedback from mm. other people. Like your siblings said, we need you to make a decision. And so you have to step out of that and say, this is not being useful. Now, other situations, it might be okay. But in this situation, it's not useful for me to not have a perspective. Mm, yeah, I love that. Um, you said earlier about, is it time to cut ties? So mm -hmm. with everything we're talking about, if you have big, beautiful, incredible, audacious dreams for your online business, but you actually lack the confidence in your ability to then actually make it happen. Then I promise you, my homie, and I say this with all the love and compassion in my heart, your company will never get where you want it to go. I've been there, guys. In Growing Quest, I had to face myself every day. I didn't know what I was doing. And I really wish that I had Shopify at the time. Because when you choose to grow your business with Shopify, you have everything you need to make your dreams a reality. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with their incredible Magic AI, award-winning customer service, and the internet's best converting checkout, you literally have everything you need to make all of your amazing businesses' dreams a reality. And that's exactly why I adore and love Shopify. If you're serious about growing your freaking badass business and you want to build your confidence and have faith, then Shopify is here for you. So go over right now and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash lisa all lowercase guys again that is go to shopify.com slash lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in one more time that's shopify.com slash lisa you won't regret it how do you advise someone with those steps so they've identified that they've got a problem they under um They've got a problem as an adult. They've identified that it's from some form of dysfunction as a child. You've laid out beautifully like all the different variations. You go really deep in your book. And now once you've identified it, what are the steps you advise someone to take? Because I assume you don't jump straight to, well, come out your life, done. Um, but at some point, that decision is a very um, wise option. Mm. And A, I want people to know what you write in your book beautifully. It is an option. And I don't think a lot of us see walking away from our family as an option. But if that's not the go-to immediately, what are the steps? And then how would you advise someone to um, make that decision for this, the sake of their mental health? Well, walking away is an option when there is abuse in the situation currently. You know, there are adults who are still being abused by the parent who abused them. I mean, physically, I've heard of some people saying, my mom hit me. As an adult? As an adult. Wow. Yeah. Or, you know, my dad screams at me or he has. And, and, you know, I think in those situations, you can try to talk to the person. You can try to set boundaries. And if you see that those things aren't helping you have the option to not be in that relationship when it is physically unsafe. Mm. 
when it is mentally unsafe for you. I think about sexual abuse or incest in families. It is unsafe for you to, you know, maybe have dinner with the person who sexually abused you. Maybe that is psychologically damaging. So each situation is different. And it is up to the person to decide, is this a situation that is continuing to cause me harm? Now, the process to getting there is trying to do something to repair those relationships. And that starts with having some conversations around the history of the relationship and what is happening presently. So if you are now an adult and your parent is, you know, perhaps still an alcoholic, how have you talked to them about what you expect from them now? Do you start with when you were a child or do you just start with the now? That's interesting. I I think most of us want to start with the childhood because Mm. we want this person to really feel it. I think when people are still unwell, I don't know if they will give you that validation you're looking for from the childhood Mm. stuff because they're not in recovery yet. A lot of the work in that relationship is going to be present focused. What can we do presently? Hey, if you're drinking, I don't want you to come to this thing. Or when you're driving, um, I will call the whatever, the, mm-hmm. you know, I'll take your keys or, you know, whatever those things are. You can do that presently, but you certainly can have that conversation of childhood just to clear the space. You know, sometimes you just want to have that conversation to get things out. But the expectation that they'll actually say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I didn't even know that. You know, sometimes we we want that. We want people to free us because they're still in the mold of it. But when people are unwell presently, I'm not sure that they can hear you in the way that you need to be heard. And so when you get into this is the trauma you cause me, would it be more harmful for them to gaslight you? Would it be more harmful for them to deny it? Would it be more harmful for them to say that it didn't happen this way? This was actually, you know, what happened? Mm -hmm. Possibly. But if you feel like you can withstand that, then have the conversation. But just know that, you know, we don't know how the conversation will go. Like some people will say, like, you know, can I can I tell my parents this? You absolutely can. What is your expectation for this? Is the expectation that they'll stop you know, this behavior immediately that they've been doing for 25 years is the expectation that they'll apologize. Is it, What is your expectation? Because have the conversation and then think about how you want to continue to show up in that relationship. Mm-hmm. That's the important piece, whether you talk about the past or the present. It is about you and how you want to be in that relationship. It's not about changing them because They're creating the life they want to have, even if the life is unhealthy, even if the life is harmful to other people, they are making a choice and you are making a choice to be well. And a part of that is saying, you know, when you're calling me and you're talking about, you know, everybody in the family, 
I don't want to hear those sort of things about my cousins. I don't want to hear those sort of things about my siblings. So I will either remain silent or I will redirect the conversation. God, that's so beautiful. So as you start to write, though, your expectations are the expectations. Like, I assume that may be setting yourself up for disaster, because if they don't meet those expectations, now you may spiral even more. So do you when you're saying to someone, OK, write down the expectations mm-hmm. Is it just the exercise and then to say, and now don't expect any of that? <laughs> that like, what, what does that expectation list look like? And how do we use yeah. it as that first step into the conversation? Because there's that massive gap right between knowing it and then actually doing it. It's like sometimes you may be worse off than if you hadn't said anything at all. Oh, I love that. Th- that's the part. I've had, I've had people write letters, these long thought out letters to their parents about everything that happened and they're and they're so sad and they send the parent the letter and the parent doesn't respond. Or they send the parent the letter and the parent calls and they start, I can't believe you. you. So it's cathartic for us to get it out, mm-hmm. right? To And that's to anybody. You know, letter writing is a great way to get your feelings out. It's a journaling process. However, Will this other person free you? I think our freedom is within. Mm. I know what happened. I know how it feels. Um, I can share this with this person if I choose to, but they cannot free me from my experience because that is for me to do. And is that then part of it? Maybe even writing down. And so that is why I'm doing it so that I'm freeing myself. And that expectation you can guarantee if you then say it, because that's in your control. Absolutely. But if the expectation is you have to agree with everything Mm. in this letter for me to feel more free, you have to now apologize. You have to now go and make amends to eight people. And, you know, it's like now that's you're stepping over into how they have to change. Mm. And we can't do that with people. And I, and I think it, it makes sense that we want that. Like we, it's not, you know, abnormal to want that from people. I just think it's harmful to ourselves to expect it from people because people are still struggling with their stuff. When we start to heal, when we start to go to therapy, when we read self-help books, it doesn't mean that everybody else in your life is doing that same thing. Mm. They are still in the sunken place and you're trying to say, you know, I have all of this insight. Think like me now. And it's like, I've not acknowledged anything. I'm still out here, you know, blaming everything on everyone else. I'm still out here mad at, you know, your dad. I still don't like my own brother. You know, like they still have all those issues. So them showing up for you and your experience, you know, it's possible that they're not capable of that. It's probably likely, right? Yeah. And so as they, as you start to then um, talk to your family, maybe see that they're not capable, in you then deciding either to accept them for who they are, because that's what you say in your book, right? You cannot change people. Changing yourself is enough, I believe, is your quote. So beautiful. So in the attempt that maybe you try to change them, you see that it doesn't work. Okay, now you're trying to change yourself. You start to feel really good about the changes that you're making. You then enter back into your family as this person who's changed. And then they throw comments like, well, you've changed. You're mm-hmm. not the same person you used to be. Mm-hmm. And for someone who may not already be so con- um, strong in their own conviction of who they are, mm-hmm. it's very hard to not revert back to that person that you were in that relationship. And so 
there's the, there becomes this like silent push and pull about the word change. And to you, you perceive this as joyful, proud. And to them, it's seen as a detriment. You're the one ruining the family. Um, is, are those the moments where you decide, okay, is this healthy for me to be in? Should I step away? We have to believe in who we're becoming. I once had a family remember a family member tell me I was funny acting. And I said, you know what? I thought about it. I was a little offended at first and I thought about it for a while. I said, this person is right because I'm not like them. All they're doing is noticing differences mm. between us. I, I, if I won't, you know, um, bend myself to your needs, that is a little, that is a little change. If I won't allow, you know, any sort of person to, to visit my home, that is a little change. So in some ways, it's a gift that you notice that. So maybe you will start to ask me before you do certain things, or maybe you will stop assuming certain things mm-hmm. because now I am funny acting. So it's it's a gift. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> please, please consider me. <laughs> I love that so much. I've actually started using, because you're so freaking great with giving people words and phrases when they come into these situations. And one thing I've been trying recently is when someone's like, oh my God, you changed. I'm like, thanks so much. I've worked really hard at it. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like, what are they going to say? If, if they meant it as an insult, they it's know not. either they either have to stop you and go, well, actually, I didn't mean that. And then that kind of opens the door to you. Go, so what did you mean then? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, because like passive aggressiveness, you see so much, especially in relationships where um, people can't seem to improve that dynamic. And so the passive aggressiveness comes in and now it seems like it just makes things worse mm-hmm. instead of actually making things better. And I definitely see that comment as being somewhat passive aggressive. Absolutely. I think it's intended to make a person feel bad. But again, believing in who you're becoming, it doesn't even matter. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know what? I don't want to be a person who can be easily taken advantage of. So if me saying no to you is like, oh, I can't take advantage of her. I'm okay with that because I don't want to be that anymore. So thank you for noticing. Mm -hmm. I have changed. There is something different about me. My nose are stronger. They are like consistent. Yeah. I, I think sometimes with family, There will be things that are said. There will be things that are, you know, maybe pushed back on. Um, And it's not necessarily that they're evil or they're mean, but we all want our needs met. Mm. You know, if I go to a store and they close at six o'clock and I'm there at 559, I'm like, come on, one more minute. You know, like (laughs) I want my need met. I get it. So it's it's not like they're doing anything that none of us have done before. They're just doing it against you and they're doing it perhaps in a harmful way. You can have the conversation. You can certainly figure out how you want to perceive in the relationship. But what they're doing is, I would say, you know, it's part of the human experience. Mm. How do you move on from that then? Because mm. um, you say in the book, which I'd never thought about it before, you know, the quote of forgive and forget. Mm-hmm. Um, you say that the body never forgets. Mm-hmm. The mind might, but Mm -hmm. the body won't. How do you start to actually let go of that? So it's not even forgetting. I think of it as like letting go, deliberately saying this no longer serves me. Mm. 
our body physically has a response to things that feel good to us and things that don't, whether that's anxiety where, you know, our stomach starts to churn and it's like, oh my gosh, I got to go to the bathroom. I need to eat something. I don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right. Or it's sweating. It is, you know, our inability to sleep. There are so many people who, before they engage with family, is like, I couldn't sleep. I didn't eat for a few days. And it's like, you're going to visit your mom. Mm-hmm. What is your nervous system telling you about visiting your mother? And when we really think about that and, and don't ignore it, like what is your body telling you about this relationship? Sometimes we feel uncomfortable in front of people. I've heard people say, I feel so uncomfortable in front of this person and I don't know why. Sometimes our memories don't start until we're five years old. I don't know what happened before that time. You have enough, you know, sometimes you'll have like one or two and it's like, well, that wasn't okay. But what happened before then? Your body is remembering even if your your brain can't, even if that memory isn't coming back. I mean, it could be something small when you're a little kid. It could be somebody yelling at you a certain way or pinching you or I don't know. But listen to your body. And how do you identify if you're listening to your body and you it, you start to make the connections? But you, you start to remember things where you were told it wasn't a big deal at the time. Mm. How do you start to know, like, actually, that was a big deal? Or, like, how do you start to identify what was a big deal when you've been told your whole life that that one moment or that occasion wasn't? Or that that moment was your fault. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I grew up in a culture when you were spanked. Mm-hmm. It was because you did something, even if the spanking was severe, even if it was embarrassing, um, it was you did something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I don't know if it was appropriate, <laughs> you know, and you could grow up believing like, oh, no, I was I deserve that. But it's like, yeah, I, I remember going to school with a kid who was spanked in front of the class. That was his punishment. His mother would come to the school and oh. whoop him in front of the class. And I'm oh, like. I don't think that's your fault. (laughs) That's like, you know, and it was it didn't curb his behavior. You know, he would continue to have behavior issues. But to some extent, it's like all of us witnessed that the teachers, the the students. And we were like, you better be good Mm because, you know, your mom will come up here. But it wasn't okay at that time. We thought it was. It was like he was misbehaving. That is the punishment for that. It's like that's not okay. And is it just them reassessing? Okay, it may have felt okay at the time, but do I still believe that now? Yeah, it's it's reassessing that at the time we use the tools we have. Mm. So if the tool is to accept, you know, how dare you fight back against the people who are raising you? Mm. You wouldn't have food. You wouldn't have shelter. So, mm. you know, a lot of the going along with is also survival. Mm. But now that you're out of the survival of living in these situations, how do you start to reclaim the parts of the truth? How do you start to be honest with yourself about what happened and not normalize toxic behaviors or dysfunction? How do you start to say, you know, my stepmother didn't treat me well. My, you know, my dad, he, you know, whatever those things are, how do you start to acknowledge that this was not okay? It's what happened. But what happened doesn't have to like be reconciled in your mind is like this pretty picture. 
And it doesn't mean you have to end the relationship. Sometimes we're afraid to talk about adult family relationships and what happened in the past because we feel like if we bring up the past, we have to end the relationship. And it's not about that. Sometimes it's just recognizing this is why I'm standoffish with this person. Mm. What's the difference in between standoffish, ignoring someone or just distancing yourself from someone? Mm. I just had this conversation yesterday. You know, distancing I see as a protection. I see it as an intentional protection. So there is this idea that people have to talk to you all the time. It's not true. It's not true. In families, you can call someone and they can't answer their phone. I have found that when I set a very clear boundary with someone, like, hey, I'm busy at work or something, and they call me four times when I'm at work, I've had people tell that person, tell other people, she's ignoring me. Hmm. I clearly said I'm at work. (laughs) Like there is no ignoring happening. Now what's happening is some distance (laughs) because I'm at work and I can't respond. Mm. So is it always ignoring or is it my interpretation of being ignored because you won't respond? So I think when a person is clear, it's not ghosting. When a person is clear, it's not ignoring. Now, if you choose to listen to that, that's up to you, but they're not ignoring you. They've been very clear. Sometimes people will say things like, I need a minute. If you're still pressuring them to talk, they are still needing their minute. (laughs) Nothing has changed. (laughs) You just want to talk to them. You want that communication. In families, sometimes there will be a huge event. And afterwards, there will be an estrangement, right? Like this, you think of, you know, sometimes financial issues when a person dies, they don't have a will and then, you know, they have these big old family disputes. Everybody's aware of why they're mad. And some people will say, oh, they ghosted me. Well, they ghosted you because you were supposed to do this thing and you did this other thing. Like it's a ghosting, but it's also a reason behind it. And that has to be recognized that perhaps for that situation, they don't want to talk to you anymore. People don't have to be in relationship with you after you've offended them. In families, I do think there is this culture of no matter what I do to you, you have to continue to talk to me and you need to forget about it. That's just the way we roll. So if I do something to you, and you don't want to talk to me after that, you're ghosting me. But you did something. Mm. If this were any other relationship, I would be allowed to leave. (laughs) But because it's family, I'm expected to stay and take some more. You know, this isn't a boxing match. We don't have to go more rounds. It's like, that was, that was enough for me. Dude, that that hit me so hard. Like the fact that if it was your yeah if it was a relationship and they were abusing you emotionally abusing you or anything everybody including your family what are you doing you've got to leave they're toxic they're so bad for you but the second you would say my family's doing this to me it's like but it's your family (laughs) you've only got one that's so true it's 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 wild the way that we um you know, I, I posted something online about financial abuse within families. Mm. And I was talking about um, in some situations, I have seen adults where their parents have taken when they were kids, they took their financial information and started 
um, lines of credit or open bills and they never paid them off. And so when these, you know, people became adults and they're ready to go to college or they're ready to get their own place, they're walking into life with debt from this parent, which is a crime. It's a crime to use your child's credit for other things. And those people, I don't know anyone who like had any legal ramifications for their family because it was family. Mm. Well, so actually, in fact, this is super interesting because also cultures like that's being Greek Orthodox. I've just my entire life. It was always like family doesn't argue over money. You just always forgive. And so there would be like and we've never had to argue over money, but I can just imagine that if we ever came into conflict, it'd be like, but your family. And so it almost dismisses all the misbehavior that anyone does within that dynamic Absolutely. because of the blood relate- relation. Yeah. And I, and I think sometimes it's not healthy for us to give a pass in this. How, how do you really make that distinction? I shouldn't be with a partner who is verbally abusive, but my father is verbally abusive. Mm-hmm. Most of us will find abuse in another situation because we're condoning it. Mm -hmm. A part of our brain condones abuse because we're in that situation. So it's not that we're like, you know what? I won't tolerate it in other relationships. To some extent we do. Mm -hmm. We start to normalize the dysfunction in other relationships. Oh, they just did it this one time. Oh, you know, I'm just arguing with them about money. It's like, This isn't okay, actually, in any situation. Mm. These are not ways that people should speak to one another. Amen. So, like, going back to ghosting, though, were you just saying, you know, usually if you, like, backtrack, you can kind of see where the ghosting comes from. Maybe you're, like, ignoring the issue. It's not actually ghosting. They've explained it to you. Um, It's more distancing. But what if it's actually ghosting and they use that as a manipulation tool? Mm. I've had that happen before in a family relationship. I had someone stop talking to me for about a year because they did something really terrible. And then the next time we talked, they tried to get me to, um, I guess, like, minimize it. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, so that wasn't that bad. And I was like, no, it's terrible. Mm. (laughs) And I wouldn't agree with them. And they didn't talk to me for a very long time. And then when they talked to me, they they continued to dismiss it. And I continued to tell the truth, but they didn't ghost me that time. But um, they won't talk about it anymore. That ghosting that happened as a result of and it was on their end. They stopped talking to me because I refused to cooperate a lie. And it was a tactic to get me to change my position. Mm. to get me to say, okay, you're right. It wasn't that bad. Everything is okay now. And I'm like, I will not talk to you to the end of time, but I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I will not participate in a lie because it's not fair to me. I don't want to be dishonest. So you will want to be in relationship with me. So using the silent treatment or ghosting someone. Yeah, that is a abusive tactic that some people will use to get you to let that boundary go to get you to uh, get over a situation to maybe even never bring back up a difficult topic. Oh, I don't want you to talk about this anymore. So your punishment is me not talking to you. And I find it a relief. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, it's like whew, you didn't call me for a year. I was eating pizzas and it was sunny outside every day. And it was wonderful. Now you're back. Gosh. <laughs> 
All right, what's up? <laughs> but what about the, the times that maybe you don't realize what's happened and someone's just ghosting you and you have no idea what has happened and then you start to like second guess yourself, you doubt everything you've ever done in mm. their presence. You know, when you're ghosted and you really truly don't have a reason why, I think the work is really to deal with not having answers for everything. You know, it's it's like the whys of why did this person die and not this person? Mm-hmm. It's what happened here. Everything doesn't have a reason. Everything doesn't have um, some ending that we could connect with. We can't put the pieces together to every story. That is a part of life mm-hmm. that we may not know some things. And it can be really hard to sit in that like uncertainty of what did I do? Will I do it again? But You know, sometimes the ghosting is because of that person. Maybe they couldn't talk to you for a certain reason. I've I've been ghosted before um, and I have no clue why the person ghosted me. Sometimes I'm like, you know, I remember being ghosted by a friend when I was getting married and I'm like, was she unhappy or like, I don't even know why. Like I could make up a ton of things and I don't know. And it was really sad that it happened. And I just have to live with not knowing. Did you reach out and ask them? I tried to. Well, this is how I knew I was ghosted. I was calling the person and they didn't they didn't answer. You know, I called them a few times. We had a regular, you know, sort of conversational style and they stopped answering. And I was like, all right, I guess that's done. Mm. So you were OK with just saying, OK, I guess. Well, I, what else could I do? Mm. I don't I don't know what else I can do. You can't force a person to give you a reason. You can't force a person to talk to you. You can certainly pressure them. You can pressure them. You can send them messages. You can call them 30 days in a row. But I get the point. Mm -hmm. You don't want to talk to me and I don't know why. Did it create a wound that you had to heal? No, because I don't feel like all relationships go that way. I have some very wonderful friendships. I have some very wonderful relationships with people. So everything doesn't go that way. I think that's a one-off situation. Um, I think those sort of things happen in life. Mm. So it's, it's not a wound as much as it's like, you know, when I have an inkling about people, I need to listen to that. When people... Um, say certain things about their other relationships that I I need to pay attention to that a little bit better. So it actually, in some ways, Mm. helped me pick healthier friends. Is that because you're very self-assured? I'm trying to think of like you come across as very confident. And so I'm trying to think of women who don't necessarily have that confidence that in that moment they make it about them. Oh, my God, what did I do wrong? Am I a bad friend? And then it's like, I want to fix it. I want to fix it. And now you actually do more detriment to your own self-esteem and who you are because you're you're thirsty, if you know Mm, what I mean. mm. I would say that the confidence I have now is practiced. I still, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, look at my hair. Girl, your hair look good. You know, I'm still still practicing. Mm. So there were moments where I was like, what did I do? And I'm like, girl, you didn't do anything. Mm. You know, so it's like, it's that part of me that's like, and then it's like, no, get yourself together, go. You know, so I understand that the lack of confidence is there when these sort of things happen to us, for sure. But I can live with not knowing And it's much harder for me to live with blaming myself. So I don't want to be responsible for everything that happens to me. There are some things that happen to me where it's like my fault, 
<laughs> but everything, especially things I don't know, I don't want to take ownership of that. I have to attribute that to the other person because I don't have any more information. Why do then we, most people self-blame first? Yes, we do. Aren't we taught that in so many ways? You know, if you, you and your sister are in the room playing and your sister starts crying, a parent walks in there. What did you do to your sister? <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> what did you do to your sister? It's all your fault. It's all your fault. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to do a lot of unlearning that everything is our fault. Everything is our responsibility. When people do things, we cause this reaction. Mm-hmm. People are entitled to have a reaction to me. They're entitled to dislike me. Not everybody on the planet likes me and I'm okay with that. I just need a few. Well, more than a few. But, you know, I just need some. I don't need everyone. And so there will be times where you you go back into that. Oh, my gosh, it's my fault. But is it really? Or is that your conditioning? Not everything is your fault and some stuff is. How do you <laughs> I love that you read that line at the end. It's amazing. <laughs> some stuff is. Don't? How do you then do it without biasness? You know, I apologize a lot and I take a lot of ownership. I have two kids and, you know, kids are constantly like, you said you were going to. You're right. (laughs) I did say that, didn't I? I messed up. You know, so there is this I'm in relationships with people who will be honest with me and say, you know, well, when you do this, then blank. I'm like, hmm, I didn't mean to say it that way. That was that wasn't right. If I could do it again, I would say it this way. So there is this mixture of, you know, this is not my fault. This is I need to take ownership here. I don't need to take ownership here. I'm human. I'm a whole person. So there are times where I still mess up how to say things. Here I am helping people with all these scripts. And I'm like, ooh, I messed that one up. (laughs) But, you know, I have the ability to go back and say, you know, the other day I said this to you. And after I thought about it, it's probably better to say it this way. This is what I really meant. And so it has taken lots and lots of practice, practice today. It will take practice tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I am not a complete human being in my thinking. I am still growing. And I think sometimes we get really bad on ourselves when we feel like we just need to be here. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm living right here. I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm just floating in between like, girl, bad job. Oh, you better, you better. You know, so there is not this space of like, I've mastered it. It's like, I'm practicing. I love that. And I think it's so beautiful, especially with everything we're talking about now, because there's so many nuances to these like individual relationships. And in moments where you try something and you're like, all right, I read Nedra's book. I've watched the interview. I got this. And then you try and you try and maybe you quote unquote fail at something or you try something. You don't get the response that you had hoped for in those moments. A lot of people can make it about them. Oh my God, I'm terrible. I'm useless at setting boundaries. We'll just forget it. Versus going, it's an iteration and you're never going to be perfect. And sometimes you set a boundary and maybe you let someone step a toe over the boundary, you know, but it's all about kind of redefining, redefining and then improvement. Mm. I have a really hard time listening to people be hard on themselves. Oh, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Mm. When people are like, oh my gosh, I'm so... Oh, my hair. or oh, I'm so stupid. Or I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you saying about yourself? If you think you're stupid, you project a lot of that onto other people and you get upset at them for talking down to you because you think you're stupid. You don't even know you're doing that because you're not even aware of what you're saying 
out of your mouth. If you're saying that, oh my gosh, what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, your head space is just like stupid, dumb, can't get anything right because now you're saying it. Mm. I am here to tell you it's not true. You got, you came over here, you have on clothes, you have on shoes. You don't seem too stupid to me. <laughs> you know, when people say I have no boundaries, not true. Did you close your car door? Boundary. You close car doors. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so what Did you stop it? at the light? Uh, boundary. You know, you're not without boundaries. Mm. Don't say that. Now, there may be some areas you need better boundaries. Who doesn't? Why do you think we then revert to such a dramatic, big statement about ourselves? It's that conditioning. We're going back to what was told to us. We're going back to being the bad girl, the bad boy. We're going back to um, causing everything that we're experiencing. Maya Angelou talks about um, or talked about when she was a kid, she stopped talking for a few years because she was molested by someone who lived down the street. And she said to someone, I hope he dies or I hope something bad happens to him. And guess what happened? He died. And she thought, oh my gosh, I killed him with my words. And so she stopped talking. Oh my God. Yes, she stopped talking. And you know, she, she later thought that's impossible. I had a thought. But we think everything that we say or think is about us. I can cause this or I can I can do this. I'm the reason my parents got a divorce. I'm the re- you're not that powerful. <laughs> <laughs> you're not that powerful to cause stuff. Mm-hmm. You you think it. We think all sorts of things. Sometimes our thoughts aren't good. It doesn't mean that it's true. Just because I think, oh, I always mess up on so-and-so. There are probably a ton of people who say, no, you don't. That's not true. Mm. But we really get into these thought cycles about who we are and what we can create based on, you know, what we think. And, you know, my friend, oh, our imaginations get so wild. I love a therapy session where I have a client that's just imagining all of this dialogue with a person. And then when I say this, they're going to say that. And I let it go because I like to listen to it. And I say, you know, you're a screenwriter. (laughs) You are a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And I would read your novel. (laughs) If you wrote a book, I'd read it because it's getting good. (laughs) This is the part where you're now saying that none of this has happened. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing how for 30 minutes (laughs) you've just talked about all this imagination. Now let's come back to the real world and get to this story. <laughs> and we do that so much. We get so creative with plots and, you know, new characters. And it's like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. All they said was you can't come over. Now you're talking about, <laughs> you've went way over here. You've brought other people into the story. And it's like, you have one thing, focus on the truth. Focus on what you know is real because all this other stuff, it's fictive. It's Mm. imagination. It's a great story. You know, maybe you can put it in a book, but it's not your real life. Mm. I love that. The screenplay thing is so powerful as well because it really helps us get out of almost out of the own head of the emotion Mm. of it. And so when someone says something and Often if a friend calls me up and they're like, I I can't believe it. And and I was like, what were the actual words that came out of their mouth? Mm -hmm. Because 
if I say to you, hey, Nedra, your hair looks beautiful today. And, you know, you make, oh, thanks, Lisa, you know, really. And then I say it to someone else and they're like, hang on a minute, you didn't think it looked nice yesterday. And mm. so now their retelling of the story is maybe Lisa insulted my hair, where that actually wasn't what I did. I yep. complimented their hair. Mm -hmm. So where's that difference between what you're hearing versus what's actually being said? Mm. It is your perception. What's being said is what we perceive is being said often. Um, it's not the actual words of a thing. I, um, I wish there were a way to record our conversations and kind of listen to them because so often what we think is being said, well, this person said that and it's like, they didn't say that. You ever, you know, I have been um, just like, in the circle of someone regurgitating a story that I witnessed that I'm like, that did not happen Yes, that way. It's the wildest thing that people can come up with what they want to believe about a situation. It's so wild. And I don't even think they're like trying to be toxic or mean or anything like that. It's just like their perception is based off of their history mm. is based off, based off of their trauma, their childhood, um, how they've you know been in relationships with other people. It's not really based on the interaction that just happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they bring like all their past into this one occasion. Yeah, and especially when you're the third party, that is so fascinating. When you're like, were you in the same room I was in? Because that <laughs> didn't happen. Um, even from childhood though, where um my husband and his sister so his sister was telling um a story at christmas time and so his mom was there and my husband was there and to her it's a traumatizing story like scar and it it's on the big scale it wasn't a big deal but for her it really was so all of respect that so she's telling this story about how it was really hurtful when she was a kid tom was in the room his mom said it to both of them at the same time and he doesn't even remember it but it was traumatic. To, so those are interesting yeah. situations, too, because it was traumatic to that person. A cousin was telling me a story and th this cousin is maybe 15 years older. And she was like, you don't remember this time that we were looking for you and we couldn't find you. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, like this is your trauma of me. Mm. <laughs> I don't even I probably was hiding in my little mind, you know, like I don't have that. As a life trauma, I have other things, but not that thing. So it's interesting that your memory of that event is like, oh, my gosh, you, I'm like, I don't have any memory of that. Yeah. It wasn't the biggest thing in my week. Do you think that in those moments, it's almost then you start to compare your trauma with someone else's and then you start to convince yourself, oh, well, if it wasn't a big deal to her, am I making a big deal out of it? No, I, th I think what's yours is yours. That's why it's really hard mm. with family relationships to tell someone that whatever this is, isn't a big deal. Like, you know, dad yelled at all of us. It wasn't a big deal. Well, the yelling at me in particular <laughs> was mm. a big deal. Now, it may not have been a big deal to you, but it's a really big deal to me. And I don't think we can decide what's impactful to someone. <laughs> <laughs> And we, we try to do that sometimes, you know, well, I had this teacher and he wasn't hard. So if you have the teacher, it's like, how dare he be hard for you? It's like, mm. OK, why are we trying to say like intensity for other people? Yeah, I, I, I don't think we can 
we can measure that. And often we try to that this will be like this. I think you, you hear it so often with so many things in life. You know, when you go in this place, it will be like this. It's like, well, Lisa's experience will be different mm-hmm. because it's Lisa. You know, your experience with this person will be different because you are coming with your history and who you are and your personality and all of these things with this person. So you being yelled at or you being, you know, traumatized by a thing is going to be different. I love that you said that. I'm not sure why I thought of this, but I find that women have this problem with uh, motherhood where there are some women that just immediately are drawn to it from the day they were pregnant they're like this is the best thing ever and i've also met women who on the side are like this is really fucking hard mm-hmm. or it's taken me mm-hmm. three weeks to feel bonded to my newborn i must be a terrible mother mm-hmm. because no every mother i speak to has these amazing experiences and i think even to what you're saying about the the, the middle child or depending on where you're born and it's still your experience and i think that it would be way like really beneficial for us to now just be honest about our experiences with these types of things because sometimes we do compare ourselves to other people who have been there and if someone hasn't struggled and you're struggling mm-hmm. you make that about you that you're incompetent that you're no good mm-hmm. but when we're talking about kind of the comparison thing i feel like that's actually really strong to be able to say it's my gen my authentic experience and that doesn't make me less of a mother or less nurturing mm-hmm. which i've heard a lot of women feel because they're comparing themselves to other women. Yeah, that comparison and feeling like our story should be the story of everyone else involved. Um, It's really hard for a person outside of a situation to put themselves in the situation. Mm. And so, you know, no matter the age of the person, and I think, you know, kids, unfortunately, there's such power over them because they really can't control anything. So if they're crying or they, that's not a big deal or do it this way or, you know, like all of the stuff we we put on them, you know, all the listening to that I had to do as a child. I'm like, people are often like, what did you want to be when you grow up? Grown. <laughs> I wanted to be grown when I grew up. <laughs> I wanted to be the adult that could choose her own food. That was right. me. <laughs> I want to choose my, can I go two places in a row this week? You know, cause my mom would be like, you went somewhere yesterday. It's like, okay, I want to go somewhere again. You know, like I want to choose. <laughs> so I just want to be grown teacher, doctor, whatever, an adult. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So I love the idea of feeling an adult. And I think that that's one thing that um, in everything that we're talking about is really acknowledging, hey, you're an adult now. So the things that have happened to you, and you say this so eloquently in your book, is that people still blame their parents. Mm-hmm. As an adult, it's like, well, my dad was like that. Well, my mum is like that. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I love that you're just like, but now you're adult. And it's up to you to choose whether you still show up like that or not. Yeah, there's a story in a book where I talk about um, two brothers and their father was an alcoholic. One brother is an alcoholic. The other brother does not drink. And someone asks, you know, why are you an alcoholic? He says, my father was an alcoholic. The other brother who doesn't drink, he says, you know, why aren't you an alcoholic? And he says, my father was an alcoholic. So there is this perception around what happens to us that's really important and and some some people you know maybe through training through you know practice maybe you know some of it is innate they say this is my circumstance and I can choose to do something different and then there are other people is like this is my circumstance and it needed to be better for me to be this other thing. Mm. 
I always think about that with like abusers. The same thing. It's like some people grow up to then abuse their children and other people grow up to say, I'm never going to even spank my child or even slap them on the hand because I was physically abused, you know, as a child. And so it's interesting, those dynamics of how one person chooses one path versus the other. And now that we're talking about being an adult and being able to make these decisions, what about those situations where you almost cannot leave? And the example that you give in your book is like in-laws. <laughs> you, you can't just ditch your in-laws. So how do you navigate a relationship with your in-laws? The biggest thing with in-laws is to remember that you are joining a family culture. You don't have to love and like these people. You need to be cordial and get along. A lot of our stuff, unfortunately, is put on the in-laws. My mother-in-law should be nice. Maybe not. Maybe she just cooks well. (laughs) She might not be nice. You know, we have these ideas about how other people should show up. You know, their family is loud. Okay. You know, you invite them over and when they leave, you're like, whoo, house quiet again. It's not that simple, but I think we do have to get into the practice of understanding that our job in this relationship is not to control it, is not to change a culture. It is to be in community with people and you don't have to be best friends with your in-laws. It can just be this is, you know, my partner's parents. These are, you know, the grandparents (laughs) or the aunts of my children. It doesn't have to be, you know, I am just so in love with my mother-in-law. But I find that that's our expectation, that it's just like happy. This person is, you know, a certain way. And we can't control that about people. What we can control is how we decide to show up in those relationships, how we decide to communicate with them. We can't make them anything other than what they are. And that goes for our family, too, that we can't change people and we certainly can't change our in-laws. But what would you do if they're toxic people? Because at least within your family... I at least don't think of my, I have an obligation to my husband to keep talking to my mother, right? Okay. It's like, it's two separate. She's my mom. Mm-hmm. If she's toxic, then I'm going to make that decision. Um, but when it's your partner's parent mm-hmm. and they're toxic, how do you protect your own, um, your own space and your own, you know, harmony? Mm. Talk to your partner about it. You know, I think it's always best if your partner can deal with their family. It does become problematic when you and your partner don't see things the same way. And they're like, my family is great. Like, there's nothing wrong with my family. In that case, you can still put up your boundaries. You know, I've certainly heard of, you know, people saying, when my mother-in-law comes to visit, she can't stay with us. That's not, you know, the partner's (laughs) boundary. It's like, she can't be in my home. (laughs) That's my boundary. So I I think you have to think of, you know, ways in which you can still have some sort of um, connection with your partner, even if they disagree, because they're from that culture. So you're trying to get them to recognize a lot of stuff like, don't you see how your mom is codependent? It's like they might like that. And here's the thing. Some of these things that we see as problematic, like enmeshment, codependent, addiction, other people may not see it that way. And it might not be problematic for them. The enmeshment that you have a huge issue with might be the greatest joy in this family. Everyone is alike here. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like we love it. And here you are like, 
uh, you all can't do anything without each other. And it's like, yeah, that's the way we like it. So what if that impacts your relationship then? Because let's say your partner is enmeshed in their family and you're finding that that actually is coming in between you and them. We have to do things separately. There are some things there. There may be some compromise of, okay, we can include your family here, but not here because we have a relationship as well. We have a commitment to each other and our family. We have Mm. created a family in this relationship. And as a part of this relationship, there are some things that we will have to do separate from other people. And you think that if if you having have that discussion before you start to interact all the time with their family so that there's Mm -hmm. just understanding between you? Absolutely. And, you know, I I think a a really good way to think about this is in the dating phase, really. If you're in a relationship with someone who just refuses, if they have a horrible family and they refuse to take any ownership and, you know, their role to, to have some boundaries and that sort of thing, that's, you know, that's something to consider and talk through at that point and maybe not continue in the relationship until it becomes this really big thing. Uh, some of those things are not new. They're just like things we've been dealing with. And, you know, you don't want to like dump a person because of their family, but it's certainly maybe a time to go to therapy. Mm. It could be a time to start reading more books about in-law type relationships and having, you know, some structure in those relationships. It's not once you get married. It's not once you have, you know, kids. It's before then that you should start having these conversations about how you handle your family and how I handle mine, how we sort of think about the way we were impacted by our families. Mm, yeah, when me and my husband got married, so we've been married for 20 years, when we first got married, I thought it was his responsibility to set the boundaries in our relationship with his parents and then realised, well, that was just a lot of pressure on him and it was me and him having almost the debate and the back and forth and it really was, hang on a minute, he's almost the third party and so I decided I was going to build my own relationship with my own mother-in-law and go straight to her and anytime I had a problem or an issue, I would approach it with her directly mm-hmm. in Instead of having my husband in the middle and that that became beautiful for my hu- my husband and I's relationship because I used to be like, what are you going to tell your mom? Right. Like it's like, you know, you're looking at your partner to tell their parent. And- I love that. I love that. And, and I think that's a wonderful way to do it. And it sounds like that worked for you and your relationship. And there are some other people who may say, you know, I don't mind talking to my parents about the issue. I think when your partner talks to their parents about the issue, it needs to be an issue for them as well. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you'll have a partner who goes back and says, well, Lisa said <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> and, and that's not very helpful. It needs to be, this is the rule in our home or this is what we need from you. It's not one person. It is, we are a united team. And as a team, this is what we think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with with your partner, your partner may not be assertive. Your partner may not like confrontation. Your partner may have their own things they're working through with their family and they're not going to be direct. So you're right. It's important that I don't want to have to say this, but I will say it as a way to preserve our relationship. I will tell my you know, mother-in-law when I'm cooking, please don't come in the kitchen and tell me how to cook dinner. You know, like those are things that you can do. I think of it as, you know, in the workplace, the protocol for an issue is typically speak to the person directly. It's not go directly to your boss. It's like 
speak to the person and just say, hey, I don't like that. Or, you know, here's another way to do it and then escalate the issue. But how do you in your relationship with in-laws figure out if this is a situation that needs to be escalated? Is this a situation you deal with um, on your own or if this is a situation you need to accept? Mm -hmm. Nedra girl, we've literally just touched the surface of all the amazing information that you have in your book. Where can we f people find you? Your book is coming out and all the good stuff you're up to. Yes. So visit my website, nedratawab.com.